Great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. We come here today to exalt your name, God, in the face of darkness, in the face of the demons, God, in the face of Satan himself. We come to exalt your name and raise your name up above every name in this world. God, I think many of us this week realize just how dark this world is. But God, we know that you are greater. God, we know that you sent Jesus into this world to be the light of the world. And he called us out of darkness and into his glorious light so that we might become the light of this world in him. And God, we are a little bit tired of shining so dimly. We want to shine bright for you. And God, if this world doesn't like it, it doesn't matter because this is my Father's world. And God, we give ourselves. We're going to start in this world by giving ourselves to you. And God, we pray that once you have all of us and you would use all of us. And then, Lord, we want to see this world change, not because we think we're so great that we can change this world, but because when we change this world in the power of the Holy Spirit, it points to that world that is coming where Jesus reigns and everybody knows it. Every knee has bowed, every tongue has confessed, and Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, God, we live like that's right now because it is right now. The reality is this is your world, God. We know that Satan has staked a claim to this world, but, God, we know that Jesus defeated him at the cross. And, Father, as we talk about that today, I pray that you would enliven my words. God, it would not just be information that I am passing this morning. But God, it would be spiritually aflame. And God, what we learned today, we would use and we would take it and we would be that light you call us to be. We would be the salt in this world that preserves, the salt that changes things, the salt that sometimes even stings, but it stings to heal God. I pray you would make us like that. Lord, get us a little closer to that this morning, we pray. We offer this time to you. I offer my mouth to you. I offer my mind to you. I pray that those who are here would hear and they would receive what your spirit is saying to your church this morning. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name, the name above every name. And Rushwood said together, amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for being here today. I know that I know that we got folks that are sick. I have my, my family, some of them again. I know that we don't have everybody here that we normally have here, but we got a good crowd here this morning. You guys look good this morning. Are you ready to hear God's Word? Are you ready to know a little bit more about Jesus this morning and be able to live for Him a little bit more? Um, before we dive in, I don't want to take too much time here because I do feel the Spirit moving this morning, but I do need to mention because this is so important. We are about to begin our life groups. You know that when you're here, we take a little break in the summer. We take a little break from about Christmas to February. Give our workers on Wednesday night, especially our kids workers and our youth workers, a little time to catch their breath before we dive back in to our other semester. And this semester is going to be our small group or our life group semester. I just want to put this out to you. I think over the past couple of years, the biggest changes we have seen, the most spiritual growth that we have seen in people in this church have not been from my preaching, although I hope sometimes it's okay. 
It has not been from our worship team, although they do a great job every single week. It's not been from anything else other than our small groups. I think that has been the most spiritual change we have seen is in people that have plugged into our groups. Our groups are very active now, but we've designed them that way to get out in the community as much as possible. We kind of start you slow in our groups, but they build momentum as they work toward the end of the semester. And I don't want to take too much time here, but I just want to say you're not getting the full Rushwood experience unless you sign up for a group. And so uh, I would just ask that you would do that. It runs for 18 weeks at the end. We have a big celebration. Uh, we have a cookout at the very end. This will take us almost until school's over this year. It's how this semester will run. But we just have a great time. You get to meet some new people. I have people tell me all the time, Rushwood's so big. And well, we're, we're, we're big compared to some churches and we're small compared to others. I, I feel like we're more of a medium-sized church, but I hear people say, Rushwood is so big, how do I get to know somebody in Rushwood? How do I get to know some folks? The best way is to be part of a life group. That's the very best way to get to know some folks around here is to sign up for a life group, plug in on that, and you will meet some new folks. I want to tell you kind of what we're offering this semester just so you know. We do have our Wannis program. That's from birth through fifth grade. And so if your child is birth to fifth grade, you drop them off here. They're here. They, it's a great program. They learn Bible verses. They learn scriptures. They really grow in God uh, through that program. And so we'd love to have you sign up your birth through fifth grade kids for Awanas and have them attend that. And Rushwood Youth is starting back. That's going to be 6th grade through 12th grade as always. And they're looking toward uh, the youth convention that will happen in Cincinnati at the end of this calendar year. And so your youth can be part of that. That's where I got called in the ministry was at one of these youth conventions. They're powerful, powerful things. And so we would ask that your youth join in and, and they're going to be working toward that. And it's just going to be a great semester there. I'm teaching a thing we call a Rush Link Membership Seminar. If you've been coming to this church for a while and you feel like you're part of Rushwood, but you've not officially signed on that dotted line and said, I want to be a member of Rushwood Church, for one thing, you get voting rights when you become a member. And I think if you're going to be here, you're going to be part of this church, you ought to have a voice in this church. Amen? So that's one good reason to take this. But we spend a 16-week course talking about what membership looks like, what our church believes. One of the great things about this course is as people have taken it, we used to do this in just two sessions. Now we've expanded to 16 sessions. As people have gone through, they get to know me as their pastor. I get to know them. We get to have a rapport. It's just been really a blessing doing it this way. And by the way, if you go to the back to sign up, the rush link is actually on an elevated table back there. It's not that it's better than everything else. It's just where Katrina put it. But just if you get confused, because I walked in and I thought, oh, she forgot the rush link. Uh, sign up sheet, but it's actually on one of the elevated tables back there. The other is right back there on one of the lower tables. Please sign up for that. We have a senior adult life group. Now, if you're a senior and you want to sign up for a, a regular, quote unquote, regular adult life group, you are welcome to do that. But we know that we have people who maybe have some mobility issues and getting out of the community might be a little tougher. And so our senior group actually meets in the Senior Life Center and they have almost a Sunday school style session that meets on Wednesday nights. And so we have that option for you as well. Man, it's just good stuff. What do you have by trying? What do you have to lose by trying this? All right. So I'm encouraging you. Give it a try. If you don't like it, you can quit. Um, but I, I really think you'll like it. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll grow in the Lord by signing up um, in, during our Rush Link time and for this Wednesday night semester. Well, today, I cannot think of a single 
more important thing to speak to you about than what I'm going to be talking about this Sunday morning. And I'll be honest with you, as I approach preparing this sermon, as I've approached preaching this sermon, I've had a mixture of excitement and dread. The reason I'm excited is because I believe this is such a powerful subject. I believe it is so important for us to know about. We're literally talking about the event that is the center of Christianity this morning and actually going into next week. And so I'm excited about that. But I also had a little bit of dread because I have to do this justice. This is one, if you're a pastor, you cannot miss it. You cannot mess up on it. You have to hit this one out of the park because it is such an important subject. And so I would ask that you pray for me right now. Just silently pray, God, help Pastor Brent this morning to deliver this the way that it needs to be delivered. Because this morning we are talking about the cross. We're talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. Today I want to speak to you on why I believe in the cross. Why I believe in the cross. This morning, if you said, man, that is a beautiful graphic. I just want to give some props to one of the young men in our church. Jamie Lambert is, has come into our church very recently, and he has a great aptitude uh, for graphics and online uh, stuff. And he's actually, during this series, he's prepared all of the Why I Believe individual sermon slides for us. And so he actually created that slide just for this sermon this morning. Why don't you give him a round of applause? He has done a great job for us. Already got him working on next week's slide, which is why I believe in the resurrection. And so I'm sure that it's going to be amazing as well. But we praise God for the gift that we see in Jamie. But at the center of Christian belief, at the fulcrum of world history, occupying the space where heaven meets earth, there stands a cross where Jesus Christ was crucified. In this series, we try to take things step by step, part by part. I've tried to almost start from the very beginning and build a rational reason, a rational outline of why you can believe in Jesus Christ, why you can believe in Christianity. And we've gone from why we believe in God to why we can believe in Jesus. And now we've come to the place where we need to talk about why we can believe in the cross. One question that someone might have when we talk about the subject of the cross, right off the bat, if you're talking to somebody who's not a believer, and I hope that you talk to people who aren't believers. I believe your best friends in life, I believe those who are closest to you as a Christian should be other Christians. I believe you should surround yourself with like-minded people who will pray for you, who will love on you, who will build you up. And I believe your closest friends in this life as a Christian should be other Christians. But I hope that all of your friends are Christians. I hope that you know some people who don't know Jesus yet. I hope that you're loving on them and you're working on them and you're trying to explain to them the hope that you have within you, why you have that hope that's within you. Uh, and I hope that you're engaging with people. So I hope that you are talking to people about why you believe in Jesus. And one question someone like that might have is, was Jesus really crucified? Was Jesus really crucified? You know, the Islamic world will teach you it was, it's, Jesus was not really crucified. They will teach you it just only appeared that Jesus was crucified, but he, did, he wasn't really crucified. So that's a large segment of the world population that would tell you that Jesus was not really crucified. But I'm here this morning to tell you that they are wrong. Jesus died on the cross. It is historically verifiable. One of my favorite philosophical defenders of the Christian faith is a man named William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig, brilliant philosophical guy. If you 
know uh, of Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is a very vehement British atheist. He's an evolutionist. He gets hard against Christianity and he tries to basically make fun of Christianity in his talks and, and what he believes. And I've always heard that when you say the name William Lane Craig, Richard Dawkins disappears. He's scared to death of this guy. He will not debate him. He will not take him on because he knows he's going to lose and lose hard. This is a brilliant man of God who has been teaching people rational reasons to believe in God for a long time. He's certainly one of the top two or three apologists in the world today. But William Lane Craig writes about the crucifixion of Jesus. That it is the one fact about Jesus of Nazareth that is universally recognized by historians. Historians all over will tell you, yes, Jesus really was crucified by the Jewish leaders and by the Romans together. By the way, there might be a good point to make there. A lot of times people want to say, well, it was the Jews that crucified Jesus. Yes, it was. There were Jews that, that helped to crucify Jesus, but it was the Romans as well. So it was both the Jewish world and the Gentile world that crucified Jesus. The whole world was involved, in a sense, in crucifying the Messiah. But William Lane Craig says that the crucifixion is indisputably established. It is an anchor point for understanding who the historical Jesus was. And you'll say, well, that guy, he's a Christian. Of course he's going to say that. Of course he's going to say that Jesus was crucified. But there's another guy named John Crossan. John Crossan was not a Christian. He did believe in a historical Jesus, but he was not a Christian. And he wrote, the crucifixion of Jesus is as well established as any historical fact in the ancient world. If you throw out the crucifixion of Jesus, you might as well throw out all of history from that time period because it's as well established as anything that happened in that time period. In fact, we have 12 sources. We have a dozen sources outside of the Bible that speak about Jesus being crucified. And that's pretty remarkable because Jesus was a man who really never left the area that he grew up. Except for the time he spent in Egypt, he stayed in one area. He was what you would call a local prophet. He was a local religious leader. He was crucified by the Romans and they crucified thousands of people. But yet we have a dozen sources that say outside of the Bible that Jesus was crucified. found this in my research. I thought this was really cool. Two Greek historians... Ballas and Phlegon. If you want some new names for if you're expecting kids and you want some new names for them, maybe not. But these two guys uh, who were Greek historians actually reported that the known world on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, these guys were not Christians, they were Greeks, but they actually reported the known world on the day of Jesus' crucifixion went dark. Just like the Bible says. Just like the Bible says, and we have other accounts talking about the darkness that fell on the world at that day. So we have historically verifiable accounts that Jesus really was crucified. We know that Jesus did die on that cross outside of the gates of Jerusalem during Passover. But when it comes to the cross, the, probably the most important thing is not to establish that Jesus was crucified, but why he was crucified. The most important thing to know is not that it happened, but why Jesus was crucified. Why did Jesus die on the cross? What good did his death do for mankind? Because as Christians, we tell people all the time, Jesus died for you. 
Jesus laid his life down for you. Jesus went to the cross for you. And we say that so much, but do we ever really stop and think, what does that really mean? That's a question a skeptic might, might ask. Well, what does that mean? Why did Jesus die for me? Why did he go to the cross for me? Well, Jesus did amazing things for this world that nobody else could have done at the cross. C.S. Lewis points out we don't have to really know why Jesus died on the cross to be saved by placing our faith in what Jesus did there. Just like a man, C.S. Lewis said this, just like a man may not understand when he eats a meal, how that meal breaks down and all the chemistry behind it and why that provides nourishment, C.S. Lewis said you may not understand that, but if you eat a meal, it will stop your hunger. Same thing for Jesus. Just because somebody does not understand all of the theological intricacies of why Jesus went to the cross and what that did for us, that does not mean that when they come to Jesus, they won't be saved. Jesus accepts the greatest intellects of all time, and many of them have come to Jesus. To somebody who barely can read or write, Jesus will accept them as well. Because, and the, the salvation that he offers on the cross will be effective for both groups. You don't have to understand all of this to live all of this and to be blessed by all of this. But this morning I want to try to help you understand as much as we can, as much as I can. I believe part of it's a mystery. I believe part of what Jesus did on the cross is above and beyond our understanding. I believe we will not fully understand it until we enter into glory and we enter into eternity with Him. But I believe there are three, at least three things that we can understand that Jesus did on the cross that mean a lot for us in the here and in the now. And remember what 1 Peter 3.15 said. It says, always be ready to give an explanation for the hope that you have within you. Always be ready to explain. If somebody says, why are you a Christian? What does that mean to you? You should be ready to give your explanation of what that means and why that, uh, why that has affected your life and changed your life, why your hope is in Jesus. So this morning I want to give you three views of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Three views of what Jesus did for us on the cross. To set up my first point, a couple of sermons ago, it's been about a month ago now, I showed a video by a guy named Neil deGrasse Tyson who is an astrophysicist. And in the first sermon that we preached in this series, we handled some of his questions that came forth in this video. But there were some that I said I would get back to later. Well, now it's later. And so I want to review one of the questions that Neil deGrasse Tyson had, one of the statements he made about why he doesn't believe in God. We want to hit it head on and we're going to see it through the lens of the cross. But first, let's watch what he has to say. I have no 
It's called theodicy. It's called a problem of pain. If God is good, and if God has all the power he needs to rectify all the evil that's in this world, why doesn't he do it? And so they conclude along with, and this is a very old formulation, this is a very old question that Neil deGrasse Tyson poses. And so those folks that have formulated these questions have come to the conclusion there must not be a God. Because if there is an all-powerful God and He is all good, He would stop the stuff that goes on in this world. He would not allow suffering to happen. Question for you this morning. Some of you may, actually we're getting far enough in time that some of you may not remember this or remember this well, but I believe most of us do. How many remember 9-11? How many remember September 11th, 2001? I remember where I was. I think I've probably told you this story before. I remember I was a teacher. I was down in my art classroom. And as all, all good teachers do at that point in time, I forgot to take my role down to the office. And so I realized in the own planning period, I ran down to the office, took my role down there, and I looked and I, I saw that there was towers. There were towers in New York on fire and they were smoking. And I said, what happened? And the lady in the office said a plane flew into the building. And I was thinking accident. I was thinking, you know, a pilot error or something like that. And I went back to my classroom. I prepared for my students to come in. And I did not have television in the classroom. And so I actually listened to it on the radio as things unfolded, as the other tower was hit, as the Pentagon was hit. And I just remember listening to that on my planning period during that day. And the sheer horror and the shock of it all. I remember just the helplessness that we felt. I remember the anger that I felt at that point in time. I was just angry. I, I, we, you had to feel violated as an American. You had to feel violated. Here's this foreign entity that's come in and has attacked us so savagely. And people who did not see it coming did not wake up that morning expecting for it to happen. And I think one of the enduring big, uh, images of 9-11 for me, one that's so heartbreaking, but one that I think we'll never get away from if we live through that day, was the image of folks who, with the fire burning and everything else, they felt like they had no other choice but to jump out of that building. I know you remember that. If you lived through that day, I know you remember that. And just the horror of that sheer act that it was, they felt like there was more hope out there than there was where they were at that moment in time. And there's statues, there's memorials, there's things that, that commemorate that. But when you look at that image, when you look at that image and you think of the suffering, you think that that person there was somebody's loved one. That was somebody's mother or, or father or brother or sister or child. And you think about the horror of all that. One of the questions that emerged during that day and may still emerge for some people is, in the midst of all of that, where was God? In the midst of that horror, in the midst of that attack, in the midst of all the death that happened at that place and time, where was God in the midst of that suffering? I remember that was a question that went out and there were many answers given and I, I tried to find it. I couldn't find the article that I read many years ago, but I remember one article gave the best answer that I heard in the midst of all of that. Where was God in the midst of the suffering on that day? He was on the cross. He was on the cross in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. He was dying on the cross for our sins. Oxford mathematician John Lennox put it this way. He said, if Jesus is God, and last week we proved that he is, if Jesus is God, that means that it was God on the cross. 
And if God is on the cross, that means at the very least, God has not remained distant, distant from our human suffering, but has become part of it. At the very least, the cross gives the answer to suffering because when God looked down in this world, and by the way, Christianity gives an explanation for why there is suffering in this world. There's suffering in this world because God created a good world, but in our sin and in our pride, we went our own way and we allowed this evil to enter into this world. It, had, it really had no place here, but we allowed it to enter into this world and we live now in a broken world. And because God has given us free will, and I know that people, some people don't believe in free will, but I do believe in a measure of human free will. Because our free will, we have gone into our sin, we've gone into our pride, we've basically shaken our fist in the face of God and we've done our own thing. That's why we have sin and death and disease. That's why this world is as it is. But the answer the cross gives is in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the pain and the sorrow that we go through, God understands because He entered into it and He became part of it and He took it on Himself. And through Jesus Christ, we don't have a God who is distant from our suffering, but He actually understands it. Probably some of you in your life have had a personal 9-11, and I don't say that in any way to trivialize what went on in New York on that day or, or Washington or Pennsylvania. I, I'm not trivializing that one bit. But personally, you've had, I'm sure, a day in your life where all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you were devastated. Maybe it was a diagnosis. You went to the doctor and you thought everything was okay and they came back with a diagnosis and you have something within your body that, that could kill you, some sort of disease. I've been there. I've had that happen. It's a, it's a day that you'll never forget if you've gone through that. Maybe it's a day where you've worked and you've worked and you've worked on a marriage and you thought you got it to a good place and all of a sudden it all blows apart and the world comes crashing down on you. That can be a personal 9-11. Maybe it's a child that you loved and you raised from the day they were born and you raised them to live for Jesus Christ and one day that child walks out the door into the darkness and they don't look back. Maybe you've had that as a personal 9-11 and this suffering comes into your life it's just overwhelming. It just comes in like a flood and you can't stand it, you can't withstand it in and of yourself. I'm here this morning to tell you that God understands. Because of the cross, because of what Jesus went through in entering into human suffering, God understands. He's not distant from our pain. He's not up in His throne room just looking down on our pain and shaking His head and, and saying, oh, that's bad. He entered into our pain. He identifies with our pain. And we believe because of the cross that Jesus began to heal the pain of this world there at the cross. That's the first thing. thing the cross means is that God understands our suffering. And I don't know if you've ever been through suffering. I don't know if you've ever been through a tough time in your life. It is wonderful to have people come alongside and say, hey, I understand. Hey, I'm there for you. Hey, I'm praying for you. I care about you. You know, I'm, I'm here for you if you need me. It's great in our times of suffering to have somebody come along and, and, and be with us in our suffering like that. But I'll tell you, at the end of the day, as great as that is, when you're really suffering, when things are really falling apart, when your heart is really broken, you don't want somebody just to identify, although there's value in that. You want somebody to end it. You want somebody who is powerful enough that they can change it. You want somebody who can come in and not only identify with your problem, but you want somebody to come in and you want somebody who can fix that problem, who can change the evil and the suffering that's coming, who can take it head on. 
We have a God, I believe this from the bottom of my heart, we have a God who has already done and can do something about the evil and the suffering that comes against us. We have a God who loves us, who knows us, and is powerful enough that he can overcome the evil in this world. I wrote this early in the week. We, we had not seen what New York was going to choose. And there were actually multiple things that New York did this week that kind of blow my mind as far as the evil that was involved in some of those acts. But there, I wrote this earlier in the week. There is evil in the world, and you and I are not able to overcome it on our own. We're just not. The evil that's in this world is greater than we are in our own human strength. In fact, sometimes uh, evil, we find that it's outside of us, but it's also inside of us. And evil is very powerful. But we have a Savior who is able to overcome it all. From the time Jesus was born, when you read the story of Jesus, when you look at the story of Jesus, from the time he was born onward, there was an evil force in this world that wanted his destruction. When we think about King Herod, who at the very beginning wanted to kill all the babies age two and under to try to destroy Jesus, to try to destroy the Messiah, there was the evil in this world that was coming against Jesus. And we see it as, as Jesus is starting his ministry. And immediately after he's baptized, Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. And Satan actually appears to Jesus and he offers him three different things, three different temptations. But at the bottom of all those temptations, Satan is basically saying, do it my way, not God's way. There's a quicker way for you to be exalted. There's a quicker way for you to rule this world. Don't go through that cross. Don't submit to what the Father is calling you to do. Do it my way. And so we see the evil force appear again. We see in Jesus' life that as he's preaching, by the way, it amazes me sometimes that some pastors and preachers this day and time are so popular. Everybody loves him. But when Jesus preached, they picked up stones to kill him. They tried to throw him off the edge of the cliff. They did several times. They came against him. In fact, to the point where Jesus was nailed to the cross, he was actually crucified because of what he taught and what he believed. Evil coming against Jesus. We see it in the garden on the night that he's going to be arrested. Evil is surrounding him so much. And he says, this is the night. This is the night where darkness has its way. This is the night where evil holds sway in this time. And Jesus is in the garden and he's sweating great drops of blood because there's so much stress because of the evil and the darkness coming around him. All of his life, all of his life, even his friend, even his friend who betrayed him. You ever had somebody betray you? Oh, that's tough to get over. That's tough to get over. If somebody who doesn't like you does something to you, okay, that's fine. We can move on. But when somebody that we trusted and maybe a confidant, maybe a friend does something to us, it breaks our heart in a, in a, a way that nothing else does. And Jesus had that happen to him when Judas betrayed him. So all this darkness on the, on the day where Jesus was crucified, all this darkness comes against Jesus on the cross. It's like, I heard one theologian put it this way. He said, it's like every drop of evil in the world found its way to Calvary. Every, every demon, every imp, every, every satanic power, everything found its way to Calvary and came against Jesus at the cross when he was crucified. When he was there hung naked before the, his family and his friends, the shame that he had to bear, the sin of the whole world overwhelming him there on the cross. Every bit of evil, every bit of darkness came against Jesus on the cross and darkness lost. Darkness lost. Jesus won the day. Jesus overcame on that cross.
sins of the whole world, all the darkness, all the evil in the entire world came against Jesus and it could not overcome him. In fact, he overcame it. Oh, death, where is your sting? There's victory in Jesus. There's victory in the cross. Sin, death, hell, Satan, none of that could defeat the power of Jesus. Colossians, you say, Grant, where is that in the Bible? Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumph, triumphing over them by the cross. In other words, not only did he just didn't barely, but he didn't just win at the buzzer. He didn't just win at the buzzer. He didn't just win at the last second. He didn't just win by the skin of his teeth. Jesus soundly, decisively defeated all of evil. He overcame the darkness of the cross. And so, number two, that means the cross means that evil has been decisively defeated. That means whatever's coming against you and whatever's coming against me, and look, we all have our own weaknesses, y'all. I'm a pastor. I'm not going to pretend like I don't. Satan has been doing this for a long time. He knows where your weakness is. He knows the things that will tempt you, and he knows the things that you'll just pass on by. He knows those things. And so he's very good at his job because he's been doing it for a very long time. But there's no sin that's come against us that was not defeated at the cross. There's no temptation that will come against us that Jesus did not overcome at the cross. The Bible tells us He was tempted in all points like we are, and yet He never sinned. He defeated it. He overcame it. And that means whatever's coming against you, whatever temptation has seized you, whatever evil is coming against you. Man, when we were down, uh, when we had the 40th day of, uh, of love life, didn't happen in Greensboro, but in Charlotte. There were actually literal witches that showed up to try to cast spells against where the love life walk was going to happen. I had a friend years ago, she told me, Brent, you need to pray because she said, there, there are people out there who are a part of the occult and everything, and they'll pray against your ministry, and they'll work against your ministry in the name of Satan, and you need to pray against that. And I was like, okay, you're a little wacky, you know. I, I just kind of dismissed that. But no, it's actually happening now. But I want to tell you that greater is he that's within me than he that's within the world. And so all that evil has been overcome. Whatever's coming against you was defeated by Jesus at the cross decisively. And so you can rest in his power. You can rest in his salvation. No, you couldn't win the victory, but he won it for you. At the cross, that's what happened. Jesus overcame evil. Give God some praise this morning. No matter what comes against you, Jesus is greater. In the 20th century, there was a famous journalist, a British journalist. His name was Malcolm Muggeridge. Some of you may have heard of him. He taught journalism in India. He moved from Great Britain and, you know, the link in history between Great Britain and India. And so he moved to India to teach journalism. He was a very lecherous man. A woman's man, a lady's man is what we might call him sometimes in, in, in today's language. One morning he got up as he was living there in India and he went down to the river to have a swim at sunrise. And in the distance across the river he saw an Indian woman who was disrobing to take a bath. And being a lecherous man like he was, he decided this was a lecherous woman or otherwise she would not be bathing at sunrise where everybody could see her. And so he decided he would swim over and see what would happen. 
And so he got in the water, he swam over, he was swimming under the water, and when he got near her, he popped his head up out of the water. She covered herself real quickly, and he was startled to see that she had no nose. He was startled to see that her fingers had all withered away. He, had, he was startled to see that her ears had decayed, and he realized that she was not a lecherous woman, but she was a leprous woman. She was afflicted with leprosy. Startled, scared her to death, and she was bathing by herself at sunrise because she could not be near anyone else. She had to do it by herself. And so he swam away, he immediately left, and he said he realized at that point in time that the darkness was not so much around him, but inside of him. That she was not the lecherous woman, that she was not the, the one who had a problem, but it was him. He, he himself had the problem. He had a sin disease inside of him that was stronger than he was. And he thought to himself, what a terrible, terrible human being I am. Years later, Malcolm Muggeridge heard the good news about Jesus Christ. And he made a decision that he could not overcome the evil that was within him. But he had heard the story about someone who could. And Malcolm Muggeridge became a Christian. And he told that story always for the rest of his life to show that it was not he who saved himself. But it was Jesus who came into his life and saved him from the sin that was within him. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Hallelujah. If you know Jesus this morning, the handwriting that was against you has been taken away. It's been nailed to the cross. You don't have to worry about it anymore because Jesus took care of it. morning let's get down to brass tacks let's get right on down to business this morning let's admit in and of ourselves by birth i'm a sinner and you're a sinner if you want to admit that there's no way that you can be saved because you don't think you need a physician if you want to admit that you're a sinner if you would just be honest if you would just look at the ten commandments and you would go through it one by one you wouldn't make it past the first one and i wouldn't either have no other gods before me how many times in your life have you put other gods before jesus how many times in your life have you put yourself on the throne of your life and you've done what you wanted to when God was calling you to do something different? If we went through the whole list, we would all fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. Let's not kid ourselves. We've all given vent to the evil that's within our heart. It's part of the human condition. We are born evil. We are born wicked. We are born separated from God. We are born doing our own thing. We are born in sin. And not only are we born that way, but we live it out through our lives. And this morning, if you or I on our own merits were to stand before a holy God, He would utterly reject us. You know what God's standard is? Perfection. If you have not been perfect, if you have not been holy as He is holy, He will in no way accept you into His kingdom. If you died this morning and you stood before God, He would look at your sin and He would look at my sin and He would say to us, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you in and of ourselves. We are all sinners. We're all broken. We've all gone, all gone our own way. But when we come to the cross, God offers us the most amazing trade that's ever been offered in this world. 
He offers us the life of Jesus for our life. He offers us the record, Jesus' record, His spotless, perfect, sinless record. God offers us that in exchange for our record. He offers God, He offers Jesus' purity and perfection in exchange for our sin. The cross means, number three, the third point this morning is, the cross means that our sins can be forgiven. There's somebody here this morning that needs to hear that. Your sins can be forgiven. There may be somebody watching online and you're going to watch this later. I just want you to know your sins can be forgiven. I don't care what you've done. There is no sin so deep that the grace of God is not deeper still. He can forgive anything if it will be put under the blood. He can forgive anything if we'll repent and we'll turn to Jesus Christ. God loves you, church. God loves you. You know how I know that God loves you? The cross tells me that God loves you. Jesus loves you. If God didn't love you, if the Father didn't love you, if the Son didn't love you, the cross would have never happened. It would have never happened if Jesus didn't love you. I mean, we're talking about God here. If God wanted to, He could have wiped out this entire universe, thrown it away like a dirty Kleenex, tossed it into the trash can, and started all over again. He's God. He can do whatever He wants to so why did God execute a plan of the cross? Why did God send Jesus Christ to die for our sins? It's because He loved you. Oh, how He loves you and me. He loves us so much that He sent His only Son to die for us. We sang a song here at this church years ago. Some of you may have been around here long enough to remember it. Some of you don't. But we used to sing a song here that says, The cross says, I love you, written in red. Written in the red of the blood of Jesus Christ, the cross says, I love you. I would do whatever it takes to bring you back into the Father's house. Jesus laid his very life down for you. The cross says that you can be forgiven. The worship team is going to sing a song this morning. I want everybody to stand up. Last night, my, my family and I watched a, a movie about a guy named Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was a world-class Olympic athlete. In fact, he won the gold medal in Munich. Or not Munich, but in Germany. He entered into World War II. He was shot down in the Pacific. He spent 47 days adrift on a raft in the Pacific. And then he was picked up by the Japanese and he was placed in an internment camp. And in that internment camp, he was beaten. They literally injected poison into his body. They did everything in the world they could to break his spirit. Because of the end of World War II, he survived. He came back home and he tried to live his life. He started training for the London Games and he broke his ankle. And so he was his dreams of going back to London were, were dashed. Couldn't be an Olympian anymore. And because of that, his heart broken. The only thing he was ever good at, the only thing he ever really knew, he turned to alcohol. Became almost an abusive husband, a wife and a brand new baby. And he, he was terrible to them. Because his heart was so broken. And so he just got deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. This man who had the world on the string was a broken man. Alienating family, alienating friends, wife wanting a divorce, everything falling apart. But then one day a guy named Billy Graham came to Los Angeles. And he held a revival. And Louis' wife finally talked him into coming to one night of the revival. 
He was interested in what Billy Graham said. He left. He came back another night. And as Billy was given the invitation, Louie actually turned to leave. He turned and he was going to walk up and leave and just go back to the life of sin and the life of brokenness that he was in. But something got a hold of his heart and he decided instead of walking out the door, he would walk down to the front and he would kneel and he would give his life to Jesus Christ. And he found when he gave his life to Jesus Christ, he had so much trouble forgiving his tormentors, those who had beaten him, those who had poisoned him, those who had made his life so miserable in the internment camp. And he had dreams about the head guy who was just terrible and nasty to him. Every night he had nightmares about this guy. He found when he gave his life to Jesus Christ that immediately those nightmares stopped. He found immediately he was able to forgive what had been done to him. He found immediately that he was able to pour all his liquor down the sink and he was able to stay away from that and never go back to it. He found immediately that he was able to be the husband and the father that he was supposed to be. His life changed in an instant. And he found purpose in life. For the rest of his life, he traveled around with Billy Graham telling his story, telling about what God had done for him. And he started boys camps for, for boys that were troubled teens and he worked to turn their lives around. And God did all that in an instant. That's what the cross was for. That's why Jesus went to the cross. At the cross, Jesus offers us a change. Jesus offers us a new life. At the cross, Jesus said, I love you. And he wrote it in the red letters of his own blood. And so this morning, I've, I've mentioned to our, our leadership team lately, I said, you know what? It seems like sometimes on Sunday mornings, it's harder to get people to come up to the front since we've gone back to one service. And I know we probably got 300 folks in here and thereabouts. And I know it's hard to move out. I know you're wondering what everybody's thinking about you. I know that it's hard to make that move with so many eyes looking at you. And that's one reason a lot of times we say bow your head, close your eyes. But really, it's not a bad thing. Because if you're going to stand for Jesus and you're going to have everybody look at you here, you're for sure going to have everybody look at you out there. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to come. And I hope that you're man or woman enough to say, I need Jesus Christ. Search your heart. Do you really know Jesus? Do you really say, Brent, I, I, I've been baptized. Yeah, but do you really know Jesus? You say, well, I grew up in church. I've been going to Sunday school. Grandpa was a Sunday school teacher. I, yeah, but do you really know Jesus? Is he really the Savior of your life? Is he really the Lord of your life? He loves you this morning. I do not want you to miss it for the world. We're going to open up and we're going to ask you to come and we're going to ask you to pray. And I promise you, if you step up, nobody will pray here alone. Somebody will step up with you and they will pray for you. But I believe God would not have laid this on my heart this morning if there wasn't somebody that didn't need Jesus Christ as their Savior today. And I know a lot of us have been walking with Him for a long time. But I know there's somebody here today that needs this. I know there's somebody here today that needs Jesus and what He did at the cross to save you from your sins. The worship team's going to lead us in this song. And I want you to listen to the words. I invite you to come. I invite you to pray. Make today your day. Make today your day. May of 1988, that's when I accepted Jesus. I've never gotten over it. He will bless you. He will change your life. You just repent of your sins. Say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done to sin against you. Come into my life. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. It's just that simple. And it's that simple because of what Jesus did on the cross. Listen to the words of this song. We invite you to come. We invite you to pray this morning.
worship team, I want to make sure. I want to make real sure that there's nobody here and somebody else that needs to step out. And so I want to ask if y'all could just sing last chorus, last verse, however that needs to look for you. But I want to make sure before we leave this place today that we all know Jesus. I know we got a lot of people who know Jesus and are walking with him this morning. I don't want to push and pull and do all that sort of thing, but I just feel like we need to go back into it one more time, get one more opportunity, and see if anybody needs to come and accept Jesus this morning. I'll never preach on anything greater than the cross. Never preach on anything greater than the cross. You may never hear this sort of sermon again. You may never have this kind of opportunity again. So we're going to go through it one more time, congregation. If you want to sing along with them, you're welcome to do that. But I just want to make sure that there's nobody here this morning. Can you honestly say you're living for Jesus? So I believe in Him. I believe in Him. Can you honestly say you're living for Him, that He's the Lord of your life? Don't miss Him while He's passing by. We're going to go one more time, and then we're going to pray. Let's see what God does.
God, I pray for those who have stepped up. God, if they truly do not know you, I pray that this morning you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. You would put your stamp on them, God, that they would know that they know that they know that they are saved to the uttermost. God, I pray, I believe you're working on even more folks' heart here this morning, God. I, I know that when I accepted you one Sunday morning, the Sunday school teacher gave an invitation, and the next Sunday night, another invitation was given, and I responded, God. And so if there's somebody here this morning that just could not quite step out, God, I pray that you would not even let them sleep this week. The conviction would fall so hard on them, God, that they would have, they would come running to know you. They would come running to publicly proclaim who you are. But God, I, I do not want to preach anybody out of their salvation this morning, God. I thank you that there is grace. I thank you that those of us who know you, God, you walk with us, you clean us up. God, there's grace on top of grace if we just will submit to you. And I thank you that grace is there to teach us to live holy lives. Not just there so we can presume upon it and do our own thing, God, and feel like we're going to heaven and that we're saved. But no, God, grace is there to teach us to live like Jesus. Thank you for being with us this morning, God. Thank you for speaking to hearts. I pray that it would not stop, God. I pray those that are online that are going to watch this later or later this afternoon, God, you would grip some of those, those hearts, God. We, we believe time is short, and we know we need you. Father, we love you, we praise you, we magnify, we lift up your name, we exalt your name. This morning we say, great are you, Lord. Thank you for the great things you have done here today. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus. And Rushwood said together, Amen. Look, I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. Sign up for a group. We hope to see you next Sunday morning. We're going to be talking about why we believe in the resurrection. God bless you. Thank you for being here.